Welcome to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. You deserve complete financial advice. There's no acceptable alternative if you want a plan to live well and on your terms. Complete financial advice equals complete peace of mind. Now, let's get into this week's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to Retire Right with Larry Heller from Heller Wealth Management. Today is a special podcast I'm really excited about. Larry has a guest. His guest is Bob Glauber, author of Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 1980s. Bob Glauber has been Newsday's national football columnist since 1992. He was Newsday's football writer covering the Jets and Giants, as well as the NFL from 1989 to 1991. Mr. Glauber also is president of the Pro Football Writers of America. He was selected as the New York State Sports Writer of the Year in 2015 and 2011 by the National Sports Media Association. Let's get into this. Good afternoon, Larry. How are you? I'm doing terrific, Eric. Thank you. I'm excited about this. You want to introduce him? Yes. So uh, I've had the privilege of knowing uh, you know Bob Glauber since the 80s and of course living on long island following him as a uh, as a newsday writer all that time so um i was thrilled to read the book and learn more about the three coaches bill walsh joe gibbs and, and bill parcells so bob thank you for joining us today first how did you come up with the idea for the book well larry you know having started covering the nfl in the 1980s my first assignment was at the gannett westchester papers covering bill parcells in 1985 and that turned out to be just a very iconic time in giants history and a very special time and you know I, i've kind of developed in in sports writing over the years and i i wanted to take a look back at what turned out to be a very special time in the nfl and, and rather than take each coach individually I took them collectively because they really collectively dominated that decade. And they, they took turns winning Super Bowls. There was an eight-year uh, – they, they've won eight out of like 11 years. They won the Super Bowl, one of those three. And I, I think combining them and telling their stories together, weaving them together, was a bit of a unique way of going about it. And I'm glad I did it because it was a lot of fun researching all three of them. Uh, through the players that they coached, the assistant coaches and, and family members. It was it was a real treat to kind of walk back in time and look at that era through the prism of of today's NFL. So, you know, you know, two of them are still alive, but Bill Walsh passed away in 2007. So did you spend a lot of time actually speaking to uh, Bill Parcells and Joe Gibbs? Or, you know, how long did it take to write the book and research it with all these other people? Yeah, well, there was a. It, it took about a, a little over a year to research it and write it, and you know during that time there'd be times where I was a little bit more into it intensive, intensively than than others. But you know I did talk at length to both Bill Parcells and Joe Gibbs on multiple occasions, and they were very generous with their time and their recollections. And you know there's a bit of a challenge when you are writing about someone who's no longer with us, and Bill Walsh. Sometimes journalistically, that's actually an advantage, and and it turned out to be the case with Bill Walsh because, you know, he's obviously able to tell his own story when he was alive, and I, and I did a lot of research on what he had written and what he had said, and and I knew him when he was alive, not as well as Parcells and Gibbs, but but talking to people about Bill Walsh, talking to his his wife, talking to his son Craig, talking to former coaches who knew him very well, Dick Vermeil and Mike White were tremendous resources. 
And when you write about and research about somebody who is not alive, I think it you can almost get more out of it because the people he knew are they're not more open in talking about him, but I think their frame of reference is is bigger and and they can kind of look back with a little more clarity than than if somebody is still with us. So it was it was a challenge, but I think I got more out of it because people were were free to talk about him. That's that you know that's interesting. You know, so for those of us who grew up watching the NFL in the eighties. You know, we saw these three usually uh, successful, you know, coaches. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they won eight, eight Super Bowls. So I was surprised. There were two things that I was surprised to kind of learn that kind of went across all three of them. And, and one of them was how, how insecure all three were when they first became a head coach. Were you surprised to learn about learn about that? Or was one more insecure than, they, than the others? Well, I would say... I, first of all, I was surprised to, to, to know that and to learn that. And I would say they had, you know, their insecurities were different, but the thing that was very similar was that they were all very intensely insecure to the point where they all thought they were going to be fired very early in their careers. Joe Gibbs, for instance, really thought he'd be fired before ever winning a game. He, he literally was afraid that he'd be the only coach in NFL history to be fired before he ever won a game. Now, he started out 0-5 in, uh, in 1981 and thought that Jack Ken Cook, who was a very temperamental owner, was going to fire him. <laughs> and he, he literally would be afraid walking in the office if he saw Jack Ken Cook. He was afraid Jack Ken Cook was going to tap him on the shoulder and says, you know, Joe, this, this is just not working. Um, <laughs> and Bill Parcells was going to be fired his first year because the, the team owners, uh, Wellington and Tim Marrow, weren't even talking at the time. And George Young, the general manager, felt that the job was just above him. He, he went 3-12-1. He lost both his parents over a seven-month span. Uh, one of his assistant coaches died during the season. And it was he was just overwhelmed. And they tried to get Howard Schnellenberger from the University of Miami to coach the Giants. He couldn't do it. And Parcells got another chance and obviously made the most of it in 1984. And then that team got better. And then Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh is probably the most – I would say maniacally insecure, most intensely insecure of the three, because even when he got successful, he, he doubted himself. And, you know, two years after his first Super Bowl win, he was ready to step down. He wanted Mike White, his former assistant coach, to coach the team. He, he felt he'd had it. He, he missed the playoffs one year after winning the Super Bowl. And he said, I, I can't do this. I, I'm no good. Um, I found that extraordinarily interesting, and um, it, it was kind of a theme throughout Bill Walsh's tenure during the NFL, and, and to some degree after it. It is fascinating that you know how history could have changed. That you know either Schnellenberg was available, or maybe Gibbs lost one more one more game. You know how the book might have turned out. <laughs> that, I wouldn't have written that book. Then. <laughs> it would have been a different book. I'll tell you, or it would have included different people. But but I. But the thing that was fascinating to me was that how they they all kind of rallied from that uncertain beginning. And you know, Walsh was two and fourteen his first year, six and ten his second year. Gibbs went eight and eight after going zero uh, and five, and, and Parcells rallied after that disastrous nineteen eighty three season. So it was really um, kind of uplifting to to learn about it and to see how they did grow as coaches as men and as you know, competitors, and, and they all had to compete against each other. And that was 
another reason why, to me, the three of them going together worked because they were interconnected. They they had to beat each other uh, because they were all in the NFC and they were all very good. So I remember Joe Gibbs telling me in one of our interviews that, um, you know, you're talking about 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 uh, Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells, and he said, man, you know, if it, if it hadn't been for those guys, uh, I might have had three or four more Super Bowls. And he wasn't bragging. He wasn't. He's not like that. He's not a bragging kind of guy. He. It was the truth. I mean, they could have really dominated that decade even more had Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells not been in Joe Gibbs's way. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing, you know, you, you see all these successful coaches, and you kind of say, oh, you know, they, they had it pretty easy, but. When you hear about all the sacrifices that they each had to make and how long it took them to get their shots, you know, especially Bill Walsh, when you talk about, you know, Cleveland, how he thought he would be the head coach, you know, head coach there, you know, it's not, you know, a, a quick way. Although that's kind of changing maybe a little bit today in the NFL with some of the younger coaches like, uh, you know, like, Sean, you know, Sean McVay. I, I don't know if that would have ever happened in the, you know, in the 80s. Yeah, the coaching landscape was very different. Although I, I will say, you know, Don Shula became the coach of the Baltimore Colts at, I believe, age 33. John Gruden was hired by the Raiders at a very young age. And Al, yeah, Al John Gruden, Madden, too. John Madden. Yeah, yeah. So the, it wasn't like there were younger coaches weren't getting opportunities. And and Walsh, on his end, he he felt that he was never going to get the chance because it, it was Cincinnati where he'd been. He, he loved coaching there. He coached for Paul Brown in the 1970s. And he was devastated to be passed over in 1976 uh, for Bill Tiger Johnson, a much more conventional coach. And Paul Brown unwittingly made the biggest mistake in franchise history. You know, he let Bill Walsh go and and Bill Walsh would have been delighted to spend the rest of his career as a head coach in Cincinnati. That's, that's not something that Bengals fans want to hear, but that's the truth. Interesting. Uh, I mean, to me, you know, the book, the the, the backstories of the, the book were, were were amazing. I love learning the behind the scenes stuff. You know, one of them was, you know, in Washington, the equipment shed for, you know, for midweek beers, which is hard to believe that went on. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, they had, you know, Vince Lombardi started what, what he called the five o'clock club. And, you know, players and coaches would just gather at the end of, the day at five o'clock and, you know, have a few beers together. And once Joe Gibbs took over that, that tradition continued and it kind of grew. Uh, and there was this old equipment shed at Redskin park and a lot of the players commandeered it and they would have their five o'clock club. They'd go practice and work hard all day, go to meetings and then drink beers to basically wait out the traffic. Um, you know, if nothing else. So a lot of linemen, a lot of defensive and offensive linemen, no quarterbacks were allowed. Joe, Joe Theismann was once turned down and said, no, you can't come in here. This was for the, the big men of the uh, of the team. But it was a real great bonding experience for them. And they were able to kind of come together as a team. And Gibbs, at, at the end, didn't like it. And he thought, you know, he needed to get rid of that because, you know, you couldn't do that in today's NFL. You just – you're not allowed to drink on the property. So it was a, kind of a throwback time – and it did help that team, but Gibbs didn't want it later in his career. He, he actually thought that the five o'clock club had disappeared and had, you know, it had gone away. And um, one day John Madden is talking to him in his office and Joe felt really good. I believe this was in maybe the 1991 season, his last championship year. And 
Gibbs said, uh, yeah, I feel good about their team. And, you know, we got you know, no more five o'clock club and you know, that that's all good. And, and John Madden told me in an interview, well, I, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him. It's like, it's still there. I was just out there drinking with him. So, and, and to hear, you know, Jeff Bostic, who was one of the officers, they had officers, they elected officers of that five o'clock club. Jeff Bostic was a, was a president and, Joe Jacoby, the big left tackle, was an officer, and Dave Butts was an officer. Big, big, the big men of that time, and they really—it was a special time. And you know, they—they they had a lot of laughs, and you know, something you would not see today. So that was really a, a throwback time and a throwback era, but a lot of great stories out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, kids growing up today probably be hard for them to imagine that that actually that actually went 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 on. So, you know, one of, one of the other things that I learned um, about, you know, Bill, Co- Bill Parcells is that he almost coached the Giants for a second time in 1997. How close did he get and, you know, what, what happened? Well, to hear John Mara, who now owns the team and, and runs the team, to hear him tell it, Bill Parcells might have been seconds away from being the head coach of the Giants in 1997. And here's how it went down. So after the 96 season, Dan Reeves is fired and the Giants are looking for a coach. The Jets are also looking for a coach that year. And George Young, who, again, remember, he wanted to fire Bill Parcells after that first year. He, he felt that Parcells had quit on the team after the 90 season. He won the second Super Bowl. He walked away in May. He had some heart problems that required surgery. So in Parcells' mind, it was health. And, but George Young felt that he quit. So George did not want to coach uh, to, to work with Parcells again because he felt that it would have been disingenuous, that it just, you know, it just wouldn't work. So he, he decided on Jim Fossil. And then at the time, the, the owners were, were split. Wellington Mara would have taken Bill Parcells back, but Robert Tisch, who owned half the team, said, no, I think we should go with George and we should do that. Well, days go by and they finally make a decision. And George Young says to the owners, look, I got to have your decision. Jim Fossil is on the, we called him Faisal. Faisal is on the phone. <laughs> I got to call him. He's, he's waiting for an answer. So he walks down the hall. And as he's walking down the hall, Bob Tish says to Wellington Mara, you know what? Go ahead. We, we'll, let's, he agrees on Bill Parcells. But, but once George got the go ahead to hire Faisal, you know, Jim Fossil, <laughs> he ran down the hall and called Fossil and, and offered him the job, and that was that. And then Bill Parcells, of course, goes to the Jets and gives them three very, very memorable years as head coach before he steps down and is general manager for a year. That's a great, great, great story. So, and, and Bill Walsh, you know, the, the practical joker, you know, from somebody outside here looking at Bill Walsh, you know, it's hard to, you know, think he would be a practical joker, but the, the story about what he did to Don Chula when he oh. went and joined Bill's <laughs> club is very funny. Can you want to explain, tell us a little bit about that? Well, this is from Madden, too. You know, like interviewing John Madden, Larry, was one of the great treats of my career, literally. There are not many people I get nervous about interviewing, but John Madden was certainly one of them because he's so iconic. He's just so larger than life and so funny. And it was like really having a private audience of a John Madden broadcast. And he he talks about Bill Walsh as this joker. And one time after, um, you know, late in his, in his life, this was after he was done coaching, Don Shula wanted to join the country club that Madden 
and uh, Bill Walsh belonged to, believed in Monterey, California. So, you know, you have to be, a, in order to be a member, you have to go through a vetting process. Some members have to interview you. So, so Walsh says to, to, to Shula, you know, you, you have to be interviewed by the, the members here and see how that goes. So he gets the interview done. He thinks everything is fine. And Walsh, you know, w- winking toward John Madden says to Shula, I don't know, Don, you know, they, they, they're, they're fine with your wife. She's, she's good. You're, you're about 50, 50, maybe 49, 51. You're, 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 you're on the edge. They need to see something more from you, Don. They, they think you're just this kind of tight, tightly wound, you know, you're being Don Shula. They, they want to see some personality. So I would suggest you go back and talk to those members and really show them who you are, Don. And uh, Shula goes, okay, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that, you know. And so Don Shula walks away to the members, and, and Walsh and, and John Madden are just cracking up as they watch Don Shula go back, wade through the members, and kind of schmooze them. And, um, and he comes back to them and says, okay, you know, I think, I, th- I think it should be okay, but l- let's just see. And, and I said to Madden, did you ever tell Shula? He says, no, I didn't have the heart. I never told him. And <laughs> 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 played practical joke on the winningest coach of all time. And uh, he, there was a lot of that with Bill Walsh. He was just a very, very funny, sarcastic, witty uh, person. And, and to those who knew him best, you know, they saw that side of him all the time. That's great. You know, but all, all three of them, you would say learned how to play, you know, mind games with their with with their players. You know, you know, which coach do you think was the best, mo- you know, motivator of the three? I would say Parcells. I, I think we we learned so much about his tricks of the trade. You know, he would just try to get to players in in their own way. You know, Billy Ard was a, was a guard, very good left guard for a number of years, and Ard had this look, he had that, like a preppy look and Parcells called him Biff and, and Art <laughs> being called Biff. So once Parcells found out that Art hated being called Biff, he always called him Biff, right? <laughs> he knew how to get under player skin, but he also knew that if he had players who could be motivated, he would motivate them. Jim Burt was a perfect example. You know, Jim Burt made the team as a free agent, nose tackle, undersized guy from the University of Miami, very fast, very powerful, but he, you know, he, he had to really make it the hard way. And Parcells, um, after, and this was when he was a defensive coordinator, after a playoff loss to Walsh in San Francisco, uh, Parcells went over to all, went up to all his defensive players and thanked them for, for, for doing a good job. And he said, you know, we're, we're going to get better. And, he went up to he went up to Jim Burt and he and he said, "You son of a bitch! I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get you out of here. I'm, you're you're gone. I am gonna you know get you out of off of this team." And like he was really mad at him. And Burt says, "Yeah, come on, bring it on," you know, and and was furious with with his coach. But Parcells knew that that kind of talk to him would get Burt going. And Burt turned into a Pro Bowl defensive tackle and a nose tackle over the years. And he was a very, very important player for that 86 championship team. And then his ability, Parcell's ability to get to a guy like Lawrence Taylor, who, Mm -hmm. you know, he was, he was a troubled person and had a drug problem, but Parcell's tried um, what he could. Um, But as a, as an athlete, he was able to reach a Lawrence Taylor. He was able to reach a, a Phil Sims, and, you know, even guys who didn't like him, Joe Morris didn't particularly like 
Bill Parcells. But now looking back, he realized he was just trying to bring out the best in him. And all those coaches were trying to do that. Gibbs was a much more, he was a straight shooter. He didn't play games. Walsh did play games, uh, very sarcastic. And he would, he would, he wouldn't yell at players. He would yell at coaches. He would yell at his assistant coaches in full earshot of his players. So it's, if, you know, if Joe Montana was making a mistake in his drop, he would yell at Mike Holmgren. Holmgren, you know, you, how is, how, how is this happening? How is Joe, how is Montana not getting that, those steps right? This is ridiculous, Mike. So he'd yell at the coach, but, but by doing that, the player would obviously hear it and the player would kind of gravitate toward his assistant coach bond with him more to try to prove to, to Bill Walsh that he could do it. So there were all these tricks that, that, that all of them used and very, very highly successful, uh, all of them. Yeah. It worked out well for all, for, you know, for all three of them. Yeah. Huh. You know, is there anything else about the, the book that you'd like to, you know, let our audience know, obviously we, you know, like you to, to go and purchase that, but is there anything, you know, that came across here that we haven't really talked about? No, I, I just think the overall look back at what they were able to do was was fascinating. And, you know, the link to today's game, it didn't really hit me until late in the process of the book that these guys really did set the stage for what we're seeing in today's NFL, and especially Parcells and Walsh. You know, it's not to say Gibbs didn't, you know, do things that are, are used in today's game, but Parcells and Walsh, their coaching – descendants are, are, are alive and well in the NFL. The, every single coach in the 2018 season had some connection to either Walsh or Parcells. You know, you go back in time to whether they coached directly for him, like Bill Belichick and, and Mike Zimmer and Sean Payton. They worked directly for Bill Parcells, either with the Giants or with Dallas. And Anthony Lynn was a coach of his in Dallas. And and, Par, and Parcells was always motivated to help assistant coaches. And, and he learned that from his high school basketball coach, Mickey Corcoran at Oradell High School. And um, that really impacted him as a young man and he carried it with him. And, and Walsh was motivated differently, uh, but no less passionately by Paul Brown who passed him over in Cincinnati. And, and Walsh just was so despondent and he promised himself that he always help his assistant coaches if he ever did get the chance to be a head coach. And, and he certainly did that. And his coaching tree is the biggest, in the history of pro sports, not just the NFL. And, and fascinating to see different motivations for those two, but their impact is still felt in today's game. It was felt in the 2018 playoffs, and it'll be felt for a number of years to come. Hmm. So whether you grew up watching football in the 80s or you want to learn more about the three coaches, I think you'll find the book extremely entertaining like I did. So um, thank you, Bob, for spending time with us today. And a reminder, the book is called uh, Guts and Genius. You can go to your favorite bookstore and pick it up there or uh, to Amazon to, uh, to purchase online. And we'll also post a link on our uh, website, Hello Wealth Management, with a direct link to the book. So uh, thank you so much, Bob. This was uh, very enjoyable to me. Thanks for having me, Larry. Really enjoyed talking about it. And great, great era of football. Can't, can't stress that enough. It was I, I was privilege to be able to cover it, uh, no less just watch it and appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate you being here. Larry, thank you for bringing him on. Bob, my Seahawks are done. So 
I'm sorry. I know. So am I. In, in Omaha? How'd that go? How'd that <laughs> <happen>? <laughs> well, and here's the kicker is that my wife is a diehard Cowboys fan. And so that was an interesting evening. Wow. Uh, wow. That's a tough one. Yeah. Hey, we're still married, right? Hey, I okay, guess that's, that's yeah. positive. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you, Eric. You bet. And thank you all for listening to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Larry comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening. And for everyone at Heller Wealth Management, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.